Bernie Marcus, a successful founder of the Home Depot hardware chain. And he was fired not long before starting that business from a hardware chain that was smaller than he managed. Warren Buffett, the successful investor, was rejected trying to get into graduate school at Harvard. He's gone on to have much success anyway. I read those stories of those two men and several others in an article that was talking about failure as a pathway to success. As we turn to Jonah chapter 3, we're looking at verses 1 through 10, continuing our series that we're calling Making Waves, as the Lord does that in our lives, in our hearts, and all around us. We're in Jonah chapter 3, and the theme in this passage is is along those lines of, of failure becoming a pathway to success. We see it in the prophet Jonah. We see it in the city of Nineveh. And what God shows us here is that he is a God of second chances. That in fact, God uses failure to bring about a new beginning. For the prophet Jonah, for the city of Nineveh, and for you. Would you read with me God's holy, inspired, infallible word, Jonah chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, saying, Arise, Go to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim to it the proclamation which I am going to tell you. So Jonah rose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three days walk. And Jonah began to go through the city one day's walk, and he cried out and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. The people of Nineveh believed in God, and they called a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. And when the word reached the king of Nineveh, he arose from his throne, laid aside his robe from him, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat on the ashes. He issued a proclamation, and it said, in Nineveh, By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let man, beast, herd, or flock taste a thing. Do not let them eat or drink water. But both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth. And let men call on God earnestly that each may turn from his wicked way and from the violence which is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we will not perish. When God saw their deeds, that they turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. This is God's word. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is true and trustworthy even as you are. Lord, we pray that it would transform our hearts, 
that it would give us hope in the midst of our failures and challenges in this life, and it would lead us on into a new beginning, maybe for the first time or maybe for the hundredth time or even more. Meet us here, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So we pick up the story again here. Jonah has been cast back out of the giant fish on dry land. And the language, if you notice, at the beginning of chapter 3 is very similar to where Jonah started off at the beginning of Jonah chapter 1. The Lord says here in verse 1, the, the, the word says, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, but it adds what? The second time. Uh, it's from a word that means do-over or repeat. They came a second time. Verse 2, and the Lord says what? Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim to it the proclamation which I am going to tell you. The Lord has given Jonah a second chance. The language reveals that. He says a second time. He uses the same kind of words. The only real shift is in Jonah chapter 1, the Lord emphasized the wickedness of Nineveh. But here he seems to emphasize the message. Proclaim the proclamation. Declare the declaration. Say the saying. The, the original language is that redundant, using the noun and verb forms of the same word. And what happens? In response, Jonah goes. He doesn't flee the total opposite direction like he did in chapter 1. But it says, Jonah arose, verse 3, and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. There's, there's an immediate obedience. Just like last time, the Lord was saying immediately obey, and Jonah immediately ran away. This time, the Lord says obey, and Jonah obeys. He arose and went. Uh, is usually indicating that sense of urgency, of immediacy. But Jonah wastes no time, and he heads out. We don't know if that was literally you know, on the shore after he's been cast out of the fish or not, or if he went home and cleaned up a little bit. We don't know. But we do know that the Lord came to him again and said, go. And he went. After his failure, after his flight, after running the complete opposite direction from the way the Lord wanted him to go, Jonah gets a second chance. And he speaks to Nineveh on his second chance to give them a second chance. And what happens? Verse 10 says at the end, God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them. And he didn't do it. Jonah gets a restart. And because he gets a restart and a do-over and a second chance, Nineveh gets a second chance. And they now get a new lease on life. God spares them from the judgment. And this is where the outline is a little different. Um, what I want you to know here is that second chances are real. Second chances are real. This chapter is all about it. You can't miss a second chance failure going to a messed up people and having that bring about success that they turn from their wicked ways. Does that not give you hope for someone like you and me and all of our messed upness? our weakness and brokenness, our limitations, that God gives second chances, that they're real and they're so necessary. Because if you just step back and think about this for a moment, 
You know, the beginning of chapter 1, we talked about Jonah and his background a little bit, right? That, that he was a prophet who said that the nation of Israel would expand its borders, that they would have military success, and they did. Even under a wicked king, God blessed them with this expansion. And it's most likely that Jonah was somewhat of a hero. You know, things are going to go well, and they go well. Yeah, you're the man, right? And then God called him to go somewhere else. He didn't want to do it. He fled. He would be considered a good guy. All right? Here's a prophet. He's a prophet who's spoken the truth of God. The word of the Lord has come to him. He's a good guy. And he runs away and rebels. Goes completely the opposite direction. And God gives him a second chance. But it's not just second chances for the good guys. He's called to go to Nineveh, one of the most evil places. Even by their king's own admission, as we just read, right? Stop the violence that you're doing. Turn, and maybe the Lord will relent. The king of Nineveh himself says. Turn from wicked ways and from the violence in your hands. They're the bad guys. And they get a second chance. So in other words, who doesn't get a second chance? Nobody. Everybody gets a second chance. The message of this passage is. Those in this passage get a second chance. They're, they're, they're real. Second chances are real and they're completely necessary. Because we all mess up. The good guys and the bad guys. We all fail. And God in his grace offers second chances. And so, will you accept God's second chance? Will you believe that God offers that? And will you allow yourself to make a new beginning? How do you do that? The first step, if you want to claim the second chance, if you want it to, to not just be something for a moment, but something lasting, the first thing you got to realize is that actually, first of all, the second chance is not about your failure. First of all, second chances are not about you or anything you have done. To really embrace what God is offering in his second chances, you have to recognize that actually the second chances are rooted in God's character. Without the God that we have, without the true God being who he is, you don't get second chances. Second chances are rooted in God's character. Look at verse 4. Jonah began to go through the city one day's walk, and he cried out and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. There's some, the language here is a little confusing about the, the city being a three days journey. It seems to talk about its size, but it's not clear. Uh, there's debate about that. And here, going in one day's walk, there's some potential for confusion, but I, I think these are good and adequate translations of what's going on. That He goes in a little ways, right? Into the city, and he begins to proclaim and declare what God had told him to declare. And it's, it's a short message. It's only five words in the Hebrew. It's uh, a simple message. Forty days, mark it on your calendar, and Nineveh is going to be overthrown. Nineveh is going to be judged and destroyed. The second chance comes because God, in speaking, 
God intercedes. God intercedes to bring about second chances. God gave a message to Jonah and said, go. And God wasn't content with Jonah uh, going aside and saying, oh, well, never mind. God works the circumstances that Jonah would go to take this message, to intercede in the lives of the people of Nineveh. God intercedes. The message itself, if you look at it, yet 40 days, Nineveh will be overthrown. It's a little strange. Uh, the name of the Lord, Yahweh, that covenant name is not mentioned, nor is just the generic name of God. It's, it's passive. It's just, Nineveh is going to be overthrown, implied by God. And in fact, that, that generic name for God appears in verse 5 and 8 and 9 and 10, two times actually, in verse 10. But God's not mentioned. It's a very short message. And it's possible that's all Jonah said. But it's also possible he said more than that. You know, the, the, the Bible does not, when it represents events, ever claim to give a full transcript of what happens. In fact, John's Gospel says, if I wrote down everything that happened, the, the world could not hold the books. Right? So there's a selectivity. So it's possible Jonah said more. It's possible this is all he said. We, we don't know. What we need to be careful about is not drawing conclusions from what's not there. You know, I've heard some say that, well, Jonah's doing the bare minimum. He only says, you know, it's like he's reluctant. Jonah's in a good place right now. He's going, obeying the Lord. And the Lord was specific. Proclaim the message that I, proclaim the proclamation I want you to go, to say. So it seems to me we should just take it at face value. You're guessing if you attribute any kind of wrong or anything else to Jonah. We don't know. But we do know is that God is interceding. That God is working through Jonah, speaking and revealing himself to them. And that's always gracious. Think about that for a moment. That this threat of judgment is actually gracious. That God is under no obligation to give any warning or any time limits. You know, when we sinned and disobeyed with Him, he, could, he would be justified in striking us down in the moment. Adam and Eve, God said, the moment you sin, you'll die. God extended grace to them, came to them, spoke to them, intervened interceded. That's what God does. He intercedes. He warns. Don't neglect His warnings. They are grace to you. Just like the warnings on your dashboard, right? The little engine light that comes on. You know, don't just you know, unplug it or something, right? It means something. Pay attention. The warnings we give one another, right? Hey, your shoe's untied to a complete stranger, right? You don't want them to trip and fall. Are you mean? No. Are you trying to nitpick and be? No. Right? When you flash your headlights at someone coming the other direction at night and they don't have their headlights on, what are you, you're, you're saying, hey, hey, your, your lights aren't on. I'm worried about you. You could hurt somebody. You could hurt yourself. Warnings are gracious. And I'm, I'm sorry to say it, guys, but then that means, and I have to confess this one, that when our wife says, do you see that car? Or there's a stop sign, right? That's gracious. Sorry, honey. That's not a, a hit against your pride, but it is. And that's the problem, right? We want to think we have it all together, men and women. 
And when someone tells us that we might be wrong, we might be headed in a poor direction, we ought to listen. All the wisdom uh, on the internet, if you look for it, about criticism. Handling criticism is to, to do just that. What do you do? You know, if it comes poorly packaged, you still got to unwrap it and find there's probably some nugget in it. Listen to it. You know, warnings are grace of God, a gift of God. He does not have to extend any warnings to us. He's under no obligations. But it's a part of His character that He will intercede and speak to us. And He's interceding through His Word. And He's interceding with the amount of time that He gives us to respond. The very fact that we're still alive is evidence of God's grace. And the fact that you're here today is evidence of His grace that He's trying to speak to you through the Word today. In fact, 2 Peter 2 or 2 Peter 3.9 puts it this way. The Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. You know, if the world is, is the way God says it is, he would, he would be unkind to not intercede. But He does intercede. He's constantly interceding. He's speaking through His Word, through His people. We call that revelation. You know, God even speaks through nature. He doesn't speak as clearly as He does in His Word. God is speaking through His image within you that you know deep down some things are right and some things are wrong. Throughout the world, if you look at morality, there are so many commonalities that it speaks to the fact that we have something profound within, and we would say from God's special revelation from the Bible, it was because we are created in His image. And so we understand deep down, whether we acknowledge it or not, that God is interceding. And we listen to His Word, and we see things like, you know what, God's not just interceding, but He's intervening. He doesn't just speak, but He, he acts. In Jonah 1, we, we saw that the Lord brought that storm when He went in the ship and was hiding underneath. The Lord sends a storm. He appointed a storm. And it's getting worse. God cranks the volume up on the storm and makes it even more intense as they keep trying to find other ways around it other than Jonah get back into the ocean, in fact. That Jonah effectively die to be rescued by that fish. We'll see in chapter 4, Lord willing, next week, that God appoints a little plant to grow up and give Jonah some shade. And he rejoices in that, that Jonah does. And then God appoints a little worm to eat the roots of that plant. And so then God appoints a scorching wind that then kills that plant. And Jonah grumbles. God in the book of Jonah is very much appointing, inter intervening, acting, and we call that God's providence. That God is at work in all of those circumstances. The storms, the little worm, the giant fish, the tree, the plants, your life. God is at work in your life right now. There is absolutely nothing happening in your life that is not a part of God's providential plan. That includes even the bad things that are happening. God is at work. He's not responsible or guilty of the sin and brokenness that we engage in. Yet He still uses it. 
In fact, it's very interesting. I wish we had time to, to go there and really dig into it. If you're interested in it, look at Isaiah 10 this week. Because God, through Isaiah, talking about, oh, as near as we can tell, decades after Jonah, right? Jo Isaiah in chapter 10 is prophesying against the nation of Assyria, which at that point now has its capital of a wide empire in Nineveh. And God at that point predicts the downfall, prophesies the downfall of Assyria, but first he prophesies the downfall of Israel. That God is going to use Assyria to bring about the downfall of Israel. That God is going to punish his people through this pagan nation. But God says that the king of Assyria doesn't know that's what he's doing. The king of Assyria is just acting like a king and conquering in his name. And in fact, he's, he's taking credit for it and saying, I'm so powerful. Yet God is at the same time using this wicked king to bring judgment on his people, to bring them back to himself. And he will then in turn judge the king of Assyria. That's God's providence. What it says to us, if we'll, if we'll look at God's word and then look around us, it says that there, there's really nothing in the end that's accidental. You know, if, you, if you've been in the church for a while, especially if you've grown up in like a Presbyterian or a Reformed tradition, you, you might say, oh, that was providential. I don't know why, but for some reason, we really only use that for positive things. Right? Oh, wow, you know, I was walking down the street and I happened to bump into somebody I was just thinking about. Oh, that was providential. You know, I'm driving down the street and I hit this gigongous pothole and, and I got two flat tires. This didn't happen, but I did hit a gigongous pothole because I've driven in Philadelphia, right? That's providential too. There's nothing happening in your life that is not a part of God's providential plan. That God is at work in all of those things. For your good. For His glory. The Lord is working, in other words, in ways you don't know. He is preparing now for future things, which could mean, you know, later today, tomorrow, next week, or years from now, he's preparing for those future things that you can't imagine, that you probably wouldn't even believe if he told you now. And if you reflect on your life, you could see that pattern of the things he's been doing. Right? And it's it's not like tea leaves that, oh, you know, this is happening, this is happening, that we understand the mystery of it. There's a lot of mystery to it. What we should walk away with is that even in the midst of all of these things and the things that seem bad and hurtful and harmful, we need to remember the character of God behind it. That if, if we want a second chance, we need to be very wary and remember that a second chance is rooted in God's character. That whatever else you're experiencing, however challenging it is, however much it's your fault or you perceive it to be God's fault, that the character of God is such that if you understand that He is at work, He's going to open up to you a second chance. Because He's interceding, He's intervening. And He's never leaving you alone. And what He wants from you then 
is to understand that second chances are not only rooted in his character, but they have to be received by your whole person, by the whole person. That you, mind, heart, and will need to be willing to receive a second chance. We see that with the people of Nineveh. Look at verse 5. Jonah goes and preaches, and then the people of Nineveh believed in God. They believed in God. That's, that's the, the first aspect here. That you need to believe in God. You, you need to have this faith, in other words, as the city of Nineveh did. And the people could have said among themselves, and maybe some of them did, I don't, I don't believe you, Jonah. Who even are you? You're not one of us. I don't believe what you say is going to happen. Who's Jonah? Where did he come from? And maybe some did say that, but it's clear that the overwhelming majority believed the message. And notice what it says. It doesn't say they believed Jonah. It says they believed in God that they understood that behind that warning that they're hearing from the prophet of God is the God of heaven and earth. And they believed in that God. They put their faith in that God. They trusted in what God says. And so that, as we speak about faith, there's three components. There's, there's an intellectual mind component where, you know, you, you look at what God says and you believe it's true. That's, that's the beginning of faith. That's one small aspect of it. But it also, there's an emotional component, a desire element where you agree not only that what God says is true, but that it means something for you, that it has personal implications where it matters that what God says is true. which in true faith and living faith also comes with a component of your will where you transfer your trust, where you surrender your will to God's will and you rely on Him for the future. That's a full faith. And if you've been someone over the years who's kind of wandered back and forth you know, it might be that you don't have that whole person invested in the Scriptures. Maybe you believe it's true, but it's kind of at a distance. And maybe you're like, oh, this doesn't matter for me, but then you don't go anywhere with it. You haven't fully given up control of your own life, and you're trying to still live things on your own terms. And Jesus says a double-minded, or James says a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. You're not going to have peace. You're not going to have a second chance. God's, in fact, going to heap up the troubles on you, most likely, until you come to your senses. He's going to ramp, you know, dial up the intensity sometimes. That aspect of faith seems to have struck the people of Nineveh. They believed in God. They listened to God as the message came through Jonah. And the message went beyond just their ears and beyond their heads into their hearts and flowed in their lives. In fact, that's what happens. If true faith is there, it is always accompanied by repentance where you turn from wrong. 
which is repentance, turning from wrong. Look at the end of verse 5. Then the people of Nineveh called a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. We talked about fasting a few weeks ago when we were in Matthew 6 and talking about fasting, so I don't, I don't want to... I don't want to go into this very long, but fasting, the short version relevant for this is fasting is very much linked with sorrow, with grieving, with loss. It's a sign, as one uh, dictionary put it, a sign that one is experiencing great sorrow. Fasting. That's the same with sackcloth as well back in those days, which was literally the cloth that you would use to make a sack that you would put stuff into, and people would wear that same material for their garments, usually with uh, some sort of hole in here so you could get right to your skin and beat your breast and have access to your heart. It was linked with that same grief and loss. Verse 6, when the word reached the king of Nineveh, he arose from his throne, laid aside his robe from him, covered himself with sackcloth, and then sat on ashes. Ashes as well, a sign of ending, a sign of failure. Cities back then that were conquered sometimes were burned to ashes. We all return to ashes or dust in the end. Ashes are a sign of just complete devastation, destruction, the fragility of human life. And so this king even experienced that, modeling before his people what it looks like to repent. Verse 7, He issued a proclamation and it said, In Nineveh, by decree of the king and the nobles, do not let man, beast, herd, or flock taste a thing. Do not let them eat or drink water. We don't know how long this lasted. We don't know if it was just during the day. But along with those symbols of grief, fasting, sackcloth, ashes, they called out earnestly that each would turn from wicked ways and from violence, verse 8. Man and beast must be covered and call on God earnestly. That's a, that's a sense of like almost violently crying out that each may turn from their wicked way and from the violence which is in their hands. I learned this week that this word turn is, is like number 12 on the most common words in the Old Testament. It's very common. And very often it's used in the sense here, which means to turn around like Pastor Dave was talking in the kids' sermon. That's the perfect illustration for repentance. It means you're headed one direction and God opens your eyes and heart and mind and will and you recognize, you know what? I'm not going the right way. I need to turn around. And so you turn around. And what you do when you do that is you realize, you know what, it's way better that way, but look at all the damage I've caused. I've, I hit that car and made those people run out of the way and all oh, this havoc has stressed people out. I'm going this way, so I've messed up. It wasn't just me heading the wrong direction, not hurting anybody. I've hurt all kinds of people, and most of all, I have hurt God who has watched me do this this whole way and been interceding and intervening, and I've ignored Him. And so repentance is this turning in a different direction. If you look at these two things, faith and repentance, they, they both have mind and heart and will involved in them. In, in the case of faith, a saving faith says that in your mind you know what God says is true. 
in your heart, you're convicted that that truth matters to you. And your will says, you know what? I'm going to give up my will and I will do what God wants. Repentance, likewise, the mind says, I I know that something is wrong. That this thing I'm doing or considering doing is wrong. And the heart says, you know what? I've done that and I'm sorry for it. I am grieved. It's not who I want to be. I feel that loss of pain that, that, that my identity or my image of myself is not what I want it to be. And so the will then takes that and says, I'm going to turn from that. I'm going to go in a new direction. And that's the second chance, right? The verse 9 then says, the, the mouth of the king here, he says, who knows? God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we will not perish. Who knows, he says. Who knows? Do you know? Do you know if God will turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so you will not perish? Who knows? The king of Nineveh, it seems, has only heard the message, repent. Which is a good start. And he needs to hear more. What he needs to hear is this God gives second chances beyond merely withdrawing short-term consequences. This God offers forgiveness. Jonah himself could have spoken to the sacrifices that would point to God's forgiveness. That God says if you would just believe in Him, trust Him, turn from what you've done wrong and offer a sacrifice and pray asking His forgiveness that you will be forgiven. And we know on this side of the cross that all of that was always pointing to the Lamb of God who would take this way the sins of the world. It was always pointing to Jesus who would come as the sacrifice, who would come not merely to do something out there, but would come to settle the account and the debt that you owe with God, that He would come and take away all of your wrongdoing because the blood of bulls and goats and calves could never take it away. Your prayers alone are insufficient. That there has to be a payment. There has to be a judgment. The debt is due. And the big question is, who's going to pay it? Who knows? God may turn and relent and withdraw. You can know. Just last week we had this verse, or maybe it was the week before that in the service, as our assurance of pardon. 1 John 1.9 If we confess our sins, He, God, is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You know what that's bracketed by? Basically saying, if you don't say you have sin, you're a liar. And if you think you can live with God and keep sinning, you don't know God. But if you want a second chance, confess your sin. Turn to God in the midst of that failure and look to Him for hope for a new obedience. Resolve it. The interesting thing in this is that faith is the gift of God, not of works so that no one can boast. It comes from God. But yet there's an element in repentance where you are active. Where you have to say, you know what? I I need to choose differently. There is a second chance and God will forgive, yet 
so often we just presume, we make no effort. We have cheap grace. But God offers to you more than that. If your faith is in Christ, if you've understood with your mind and your heart and your will, if you are seeking Him, the evidence of that is not perfection in your life. You will still fail, but the evidence of it is, how long is it taking me to turn back? How far astray am I going? And if you've gone really far, today, start coming back. Today, that is open to you. Confess that sin to God. Admit it and resolve today that, you know what, I'm not going to put this off another moment. I'm not going to put this off another minute. I, today, right now, I'm going to resolve that I will follow Jesus, that I will live not perfectly, but repentantly. That I will acknowledge that, God, your character is such that, that I, I believe you are intervening in my life. I believe that you are interceding. I will look at your word. And I am going to, Lord, I am going to embrace you in this hope of a second chance with my whole person. And I'm telling you, you, you will never experience that peace unless you do that. You will continue wavering and wandering. That doesn't mean if you give up control of your life that it's all going to be perfect and wonderful without pain or sorrow. That's just not true. But there will be an underlying stability that you see evidenced in so many lives of our people who walk with Jesus through the hard times, through the challenges, through the struggles. And that's available to you. That second chance that God in His character never changes. That in fact, this passage in verse 10, some people struggle with because it sounds like God is repenting. In fact, some translate this very poorly as God repented and didn't bring upon them. It's God relented. And what it says to us is it's a fundamental part of God's character. Not that he changes, but in fact that he doesn't change. That God's character is always such that those who repent and look to him, he offers forgiveness. That no matter what you've done, God doesn't change. That God's promises of judgment have apparently and always will be conditional until the end. But up until that end, we can turn back. That God's character is such that he will forgive. He will extend grace because that relationship with you is always what he's been seeking. It's what it's always been about. It's the purpose of the law, of why he made it, that it, we would have healthy relationships with him. And as we break that law, we have unhealthy relationships. And so he loves us so much that he will turn up the heat sometimes. That's not the only reason he turns up the heat. He does it for reasons we don't understand. But he will turn up the heat sometimes until we will turn back to him. And he offers forgiveness. Second chances. And whether you're a good person or a bad person, you need a second chance. And you're probably going to need a third, a fourth, a fifth, sixth, seventh, tenth. And God offers that. So accept that second chance. Don't let failure, don't let your failure lie to you. Don't let your fears keep you from the God of grace. The one who shows it in this passage. With Jonah? With Nineveh? 
with you. Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we thank you for your grace and your mercy. And Lord, I pray right now uh, for those who have wandered. that they would feel an extra measure of your spirit today, maybe pressing in on them for their sin, but Lord, even more so, giving them a hope that there is a second chance. Thank you, Lord, that the blood of Jesus covers every sin. That as we sang earlier, Lord, he has hushed the law's loud thunder. He has quenched Mount Sinai's flame. He has washed us with his blood. Lord, would you make that real in our hearts today for whatever we've done, big or small. Give us this hope today, a new beginning. Lord, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.